musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And the man burns in a few hours. <laughs> that's how a burner, uh, that is, someone who has been to Burning Man, that's how they keep track of time. Not by the day, week, or even year. It's just uh, how many days, or right now, how many hours until the man burns. It's just uh, one repeating cycle of burning the man and then counting down until the next time the man burns. But sadly, a young woman from Wyoming who was one of the participants at Burning Man died after she fell under a large vehicle. And to put to rest the rumors that started spreading immediately after this tragic event, an accidental death at Burning Man is uh, really quite rare. Yesterday, I saw someone on Twitter claim that there was uh, more than one accidental death every year. Not so. If I'm not mistaken, this is uh, only the second accidental death in over 10 years. Of course, uh, you know, there have been several heart attack deaths and at least one suicide I know of. But the low number of such incidents is quite astounding when you realize that we're talking about a city of over 60,000 people. I guess closer to 70,000 now. Name one other city with over 60,000 people that has such a low accidental death rate. And on top of that, uh, what really surprises me the most is that hundreds or maybe even thousands of people don't die there each year. <laughs> I bet that got your attention if you were just waiting for me to quit talking. Of course I'm kidding about the number of potential accidents, and the reason that I'm kidding is that, well, once you've been there and participated for yourself, you realize that Burning Man is probably the safest large event in the country at least when you factor in the ratio of dangerous activities per capita. I mean, your first year there will just blow you away. It seems like every other guy is carrying a flamethrower, and uh, many of the women are spinning huge pots of fire around like crazy. And then there are the art cars and the large works of art uh, as well that are rigged out with all kinds of fire-breathing devices. It's one of the world's largest, uh, most exciting, and safest displays of anarchy that you'll find. So, while we do mourn the loss of one of our own, as we should, we would be wise to also keep in mind the fact that just because we're having a good time, it doesn't mean that we can ever let our guard down, uh, at least when we're not safely home in our nests, uh, and particularly when at Burning Man. And I guess I should also note for our fellow saloners who may hear this uh, for the first time several years from now, this was also the year that the first day of the event saw the gates closed due to, are you ready for this? Rain. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there apparently was quite a rainstorm that came across the uh, previously dry playa. And from what little I can gather from the brief messages I've been receiving from friends who are there right now, the mud became so sticky that everyone there had to just stay in place or risk getting seriously stuck in the mud. I don't even want to think about that long line of traffic waiting on that little two-lane road that leads to the event. Traffic in normal times is backed up for miles and miles, as I know from frustrating experience. But after waiting in that line for hours and then being told that the gates wouldn't be opening until the next day, well, I thank my lucky stars that I couldn't afford to go to Burning Man this year. There are uh, some definite advantages to being short on disposable income. <laughs> and uh, by the way, a uh, big shout out to the video crew this year for streaming the event in HD. I almost feel like I'm there myself, but uh, without the dust. 
Okay, I've got to stop talking here or we'll never get to another conversation with Terrence McKenna. And this one took place in June of 1994. And uh, you'd better hang on to your seat because this is a total Terrence McKenna geek out. There's so much uh, concrescence of time and compression of historical development going on in the world right now that you can uh, you can hardly uh, pick up a journal in your favorite field without seeing that all paradigms are being challenged, and this is happening regardless of you know, the area you're working in. It may be the design of solid-state circuitry, it may be quantum mechanics or cosmology or uh, uh, information theory. There are simultaneously now going on so many breakthroughs in the the investigation of nature and mathematics that one of the themes of these discussions will be how unpredictable the consequences are of all this knowledge flowing together. No one is planning how these various technologies, insights, uh, and tools are are going to fit together. And in a way, it, it creates uh, it creates uh, opportunity because there is so much chaos, because very small forces can uh, exert major changes. I'm sure you all know the cliché about the butterfly whose wing beat starts the hurricane. I got a fax the day before I came down here saying that Interpol had put out an all-points bulletin for that very butterfly (laughs) (laughs) was uh, attempting to corner it and to halt the hurricane season. (laughs) So (laughs) they do take this stuff seriously. (laughs) So um, just, I mean... I would, just to review some recent developments that may or may not be related to each other, but they are certainly related in the sense that they are all occurring right now. Uh, Some of you may have followed the detection of the top quark in uh, a recent series of experiments at, uh, at CERN in Geneva. Well, this essentially ends an entire program of, uh, of nuclear and particle physics that's been carried on since the 20s. Now the, the quark model of matter is essentially complete in its more modest uh, uh, formulation. All the predicted particles have been detected. There is good agreement between theory and theoretical formulation. And this represents uh, the culmination of an effort to come to grips with matter that's been underway since the Greeks. And it essentially, you know, in 1994, the, the general sense is that it's now pretty well nailed down. Uh, this is astonishing and uh, ends... A, a whole 
intellectual effort that, as I say, began with the Greeks, gained momentum with Newton, gained incredible uh, intellectual focus throughout the 20th century, and is now completed. It's the equivalent of the sequencing of the human genome in biology, which is the next subject that I wanted to mention, which is this project, which was slated to be finished around 2020, is now probably going to be finished well before 2000. Because once they got into it, they discovered that it's like riding a bicycle. The more you do it, the easier it is to do. And very, very sophisticated, computer-driven chemical dis, uh, simulation techniques have been invented. And the human genome is just filling up like a crossword puzzle day by day, week by week, uh, as we speak. Could you explain what that is? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, well, um, every organism in nature is specified by a unique sequence of uh, chemical um, labels called nucleotides, and they are stored in the DNA. And this nucleotide message, in the case of human beings, is like uh, up to... Uh, 20 million units long and it's basically the script for a human being now whether you get you or me depends on whether the switches are set in up and down positions but all human beings have the same uh, uh, gene sequence it's called and and so if you can sequence if you can determine the human genome you can uh, predict the occurrence of all kinds of hereditary diseases and, you know, have a kind of utopian approach to medicine where everyone throughout their entire life knows what they are at risk for and in contemplating any possible pairing for procreation, you know, just down to a gnat's eyelash, what the child's genetic predisposition for various uh, diseases and enzyme deficiencies and this sort of thing. Well, so this is happening, and uh, at a at a startling pace. Can, um, I, can I ask you something? Sure. Um, so if this is, if you say that it's predetermined, does, uh, is that like? Do we have anything to say about it? I mean, can you like prevent then? Oh, oh, yeah. You can definitely idea. prevent, because you see, if you can locate where on the genome the defective gene is... How do you spell genome? G-E-N-O-M-E. If you can locate where in the genome the, the problem is for any uh, genetic defect, then you can design a repair gene that can go in there and actually just scissor the bad piece out and put the good piece in. And this is not science fiction. This is being done in the laboratory now. uh, And it will... It's happening. The main point of what I'm talking about tonight is all these crazy, far-out Flash Gordon things are well-advanced. And yet, and the other point, highly ignorant of each other so that the cross-fertilization process that is really going to make all this come into a kind of new paradigmatic order hasn't yet uh, been revealed. Uh, Okay, uh, other items. 
um, and some of these range toward the, oh, wow, remember, ultimately, this is just a laundry list of things on my mind. Uh, uh, the events that will occur in the vicinity of Jupiter uh, in the third week of July of this year are extraordinarily interesting from all kinds of points of view. Are you all aware of what I'm talking no. about? No. Okay, in January, an object was detected uh, breaking up under the tidal forces of Jovian gravity, and this object was named Schumacher Levy 9, and it has is now in about 25 pieces that are 3 to 5 kilometers in diameter each. And the Newtonian mechanics of this decaying system of orbits dictates that between the 19th and the 26th of July of this year, these objects will smash into the planet Jupiter on the dark side, on the side turned away from the Earth at the moment of impact. But because... Well, it's a fascinating event for many reasons. First of all, it's going to churn up an enormous amount of material from deep below the cloud tops of Jupiter, and within six hours, the parameter will turn into view of Earth-based telescopes. The other thing is, these planets, crushing events, these collisions of large objects in the solar system, have a very interesting and not fully understood role in uh, the formation of our own Earth and the way the history of life has developed on it. For example, and this is the next new thing I wanted to talk about, there has been a sudden coalescence of agreement in in uh, planetary geophysics over the past six months over a problem which may not have been bothering you, but bothered me, (laughs) which was, uh, where did the moon come from? And uh, there have been, for hundreds of years, different theories. I mean, clear back to Laplace, one theory... Laplace noticed that galaxies and solar systems, everything condensed down out of dust, and he put, this is in the 1770s, put forth the very plausible theory that the moon simply was an aggregation of material in the same way that the earth was an aggregation of material and that it formed around the earth. Well, then there are problems with this, technical problems. It just doesn't check out. So then another theory that had its vogue was that the Earth was spinning very rapidly in its early history, and a blob, actually it just separated off a hot blob of stuff which went off into space. Uh, Suddenly, new techniques for analyzing Apollo rocks and stuff brought back from the moon and all kinds of conferences and so forth they figured it out. And the answer is extraordinary. And none of the above. The answer is that 4.1 billion years ago, the Earth was struck by an object the size of Mars. And that in, the, in this catastrophe, enough ejecta went into orbit around the planet to condense as the moon. 
it's remarkable that such a catastrophic and dramatic theory could get unanimous acceptance mm-hmm. in the field of planetary science where all this mm-hmm. stuff is most tackled over. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was the planet the size of Mars that hit the Earth? Was it Mars? Or no, it wasn't Mars. It doesn't exist. Its core has now sunk into the core of the Earth. It had an iron core. Mm-hmm. It is now part of the Earth. And the lightweight pyro, uh, pyrocene ejecta formed the moon. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in this, this month's Scientific American has it on the cover. Mm-hmm. A photo of the event. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just extraordinary uh, revolution in theory in a very fundamental matter because, you know, some people claim that the moon was captured and that the it was captured as recently as 65 million years ago and that the, the complexity of mammalian phylogeny is related to the presence of the moon and now all that's out. The moon is very old. It emerged in this catastrophe basically at the moment of the solidification of the surface of... Uh, the Earth. It was a climactic event that came at the end of a series of asteroidal infalls that basically built um, the planet. So then, other things. How does that tie into this thing with Jupiter? Then is that just to give us an idea how that happened? Or what? Yeah, that we've never had an opportunity to observe anything like this. The event, the extinction event, which killed the dinosaurs and and created the beginning of the Mesozoic era uh, 65 million years ago, was not as energetic an event as this thing that's going to happen in July. Yeah. It was very interesting to watch how the scientific press played this thing. Because, like, Schumacher Levy 9 was discovered in, on January 9th, and the um, Bulletin of Astrophysics on the 12th broke the news to everybody who wasn't already following it on email or something. And they called it a once in a hundred million year event, which interesting that this once in a hundred million year event would occur at a very at a moment when human beings have instruments on their way to Jupiter so then they within a month they had it down to once in a million year event and and now i think they're saying nobody has any idea this may be once every hundred years it happens but it, it's uh, it's it's very interesting. The explosion will be so large, and since it can't be directly seen by Earth-based telescopes, the energy release will be measured by measuring the flash of reflected light off the moons of Jupiter. In other words, they will they will rise in luminosity and then fall very suddenly as this explosion takes place on the backside. So, that's that. Uh, sort of in line with all of this and with a kind of an Esalen spin on it, um, something very interesting that's been going on, if you're a fan of the history of science and ideas, is that in the last six months there's been a very interesting effort to uh, look again at David Bohm's work. 
David Bohm is now dead, and I believe he taught here or he visited here many times. In any case, his ideas are well known here. And uh, he was sort of always our physicist, our meaning the slightly flakier end of things. And for that reason, he was not taken seriously, as seriously as he should have been in the halls of physics. Well, then I think he died about 18 months ago. Well, now, in Scientific American and in physical review letters, uh, there have been long editorials saying that a problem which has haunted quantum physics throughout the 20th century could be solved by admitting that the Copenhagen School, which is Niels Bohr and all and Heisenberg and all those untouchable and godlike figures, to admit that they were actually wrong about something fundamental, and that David Bohm's quantum physics, which gives the same numerical results as theirs, is in fact a more elegant formulation. And what it is that is at issue here is something that everybody who has concerned themselves with quantum physics for 10 minutes has encountered, which is the famous uncertainty conundrum. Every school child knows by now that you cannot determine the velocity and the absolute position of an electron at the same time. Because as you bring velocity into focus, absolute position smears out. As you bring absolute position into focus, velocity smears out. This is called the uncertainty principle. And probably more muddle-headed prose has been generated around this problem in physics in the last 70 years than in any other. Well, it turns out that if you go with David Bohm, there is no uncertainty. You can know the position and the speed, the velocity, with perfect certainty at the same moment of time. The problem is, and the reason why he was never taken seriously, is that all these quantum formulations carry with them certain metaphysical baggage that is hard for other theorists to accept. And the impossible baggage that Bohm's theory carried was uh, what is called non-locality. Non-locality. This is the peculiar feature of nature which is built into Bohm's formulation of quantum physics that uh, any two particles ever associated with each other at some time in what we call the past maintain a magical and instantaneous connection with each other, no matter how far apart they are, for the rest of their existence. And that this is not subject to the inverse square law that determines the speed, that slows the speed of light. This is some kind of magical property which is instantaneous. Well, this seemed so outlandish that it was just thought to prove on the face of it that Bohm was wrong. Because they said, well, look at the consequences. If you were to accept this, you'd do this insane thing that would be built in there. But now, because of what's called Bell's theorem, they are actually doing experiments which demonstrate 
in the same way you demonstrate the charge of the electron or the speed of light, they're actually doing experiments which demonstrate that non-locality is real. You associate two electrons, uh, you pass them through a grid of some sort which separates them, you capture one of them, determine its charge, flip it to its opposite charge, and having captured the other one, you notice that when you flip the charge on one, the charge on the other one automatically reverses instantaneously, and that these things behave as though they never left each other's presence. Non-locality. Well, this sets the stage for a staggering realization, because if the universe is non-local in terms of information, then all the raving over the past 30 years about holographic universes and psychedelic plenums and the monadic, fractal, higher-dimensional, akashic hoo-ha, all that is suddenly begins to gain vindication. And, uh, okay, so that's all happening. <laughs> Meanwhile... Three doors down the hall in the branch of things marked information theory, they're realizing that there is a way to analyze physics so that what you get is that physic that that what we call matter is simply information in association with energy. That Information associated with energy is matter. So then you go back to this other branch of understanding and they're saying th that, uh, that information is non-local. And then what that begins to sound like then is that matter also is non-local in some sense. And if you could download that into a technology, you could walk from here to Zenebel Ganubi without ever going through high vacuum. And uh, that would be uh, big news. You understand what I'm saying? Good. Yes, it would be reasonable to ask a question at this point. <laughs> so how does the principle of non-locality come in to prove that you can determine position and velocity at the same time? Oh, oh it doesn't. It's simply that uh, as a consequence of accepting the parts of his theory which allow you the absolute prediction of velocity and, and position, you get as a kind of, you can't not order it, side dish, this non-locality thing. <laughs> And when really, a, a way of talking about non-locality is to say, and then this goes to a whole other branch of knowledge that's also just boiling at fever pitch, is to say, well, then what we're really saying is that the universe is fractal, that it's an enfolded set of values such that you can extract the whole story from any subset. Uh, and again, this... All of this, complexity theory, chaos dynamics, fractal mathematics, what's happening is that the computer is allowing us to go beyond the mathematical objects of Greek philosophy, which were, you know, what did we have? We had um, uh, 
the the cube, the perfect circle, the dodecahedron, so forth and so on, and then through the genius of Newton and Leibniz and that crowd, the infinite set of ellipses that we could extract from the section cone that allowed us to do calculus, that allowed us to do modern science, but that's sort of where it ended. You know, with Newtonian mechanics and and then statistical mechanics to handle the quantum, but now with chaos dynamics and uh, and fractal mathematics and and complexity theory, we are actually producing mathematical models of nature that are more like nature than anything we've ever seen before. And it's, in a sense, the the culmination of the holy grail of a certain branch of human thinking that out of numbers and their relationships, which are, after all, objects in the human mind, whatever that is, comes this incredible close correspondence to nature, which is the most remotely removed an ontologically independent thing we know vis-a-vis the human mind. Um, okay, so that I was a little pan to David Baum, and then moving through that um, and going further, Ilya Prigozhin, who has also been to Esalen and had an influence on many people who taught at Esalen, and m- me among them, although I was just sort of like sharpening his pencils at that stage, uh, it, who has already established his track record by winning the Nobel Prize for Physics by destroying the second law of thermodynamics, which was no small accomplishment, believe me, because there was no law of nature to emerge in the 18th, in the 19th century more tenaciously believed in than the second law of thermodynamics. And Prigozhin just showed that, you know, it was a generally true statement of a rather complex situation in which actually sometimes it was bunk. And he secured that mathematically. That was 20 years ago. Now Prigozhin is coming forward uh, with a theory that... I modestly suggest sounds somewhat like my notion about time that time is first of all not a construct of the human mind it is in fact a property of the universe like energy like uh, matter it, 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 it's a thing is what we're trying to say here <coughs> It's not an abstraction, and this is not the first time science has had to make this leap. I mean, the curved field, the electromagnetic field, was at first thought to be some kind of weird mathematical contortion you had to go through to understand electricity, but couldn't possibly actually have anything to do with what it was. And then it was realized, you know, that it was it was actually a, a point-for-point uh, description. So Prigozhin is being beginning to say that time is a thing and that therefore it has an arrow and that complexity is conserved as you approach the present, which is what I've been saying year in and year out here for a while. I didn't call it complexity. I called it novelty and used Whitehead's vocabulary. But there is you know, a very uh, exciting convergence of intuitions here that seem you know really to hold the possibility of a of a whole new way of thinking about uh, 
uh, about time and determinism and novelty and uh, and the build up of structure in time. I, I yeah. That your theory of novelty was that it was not conserved but increasing. Well, what I mean by conserved is that it never it its general tendency is to never slip back. In other words, once some novelty is is achieved, it's tenaciously retained, and it becomes instead the foundation for new novelty. And that's how novelty increases over time by building on pre-established levels of novelty. So that, for instance, uh, molecular structure very novel at its inception becomes ultimately the precondition for biology, a later arriving phase of novelty. And then culture builds on biology and, and so forth like that. Yeah? So when you said that, um, what was the other term? Not novelty, but pregoning... Oh, prego- complexity. complexity. Is um, maintained as we get closer to the present? Yes, that that complexity seems to be clustering near the present. Meaning this present or any present? No, this present. In other words, what he's saying, part of his breakthrough, is he's saying the arrow of time is real. It is, the universe is, from end to end, oriented in one direction. It isn't an artifact of human perception. This is a break with... uh, ordinary physics, which insists that all these transforms can be run backward in time as well as forward. He says no, and that's what I've been saying. Uh, my conception is that the, the cosmos is at what I call a novelty-conserving engine, and that it, it, it through a, a sort of a one-step, two steps forward, one-step back process, marches ever deeper into novelty and ever faster. That's the other thing uh, that that interests me because I, I am now... I have a very palpable sense that time is accelerating and that the convergence of some of these things we've been talking about is going to eventually lead to a discussion of what is the nature of time and experience, that that in fact history does seem to be ending. This sort of vague and murky intuition of religious ontology is now respectable in physics laboratories. And the presence of human culture on the planet at this incredibly advanced state of acceleration and novelty seems to indicate that you know we are making it impossible for ourselves to go anywhere but into another kind of, of uh, cultural dimension. Well, which I guess leads me on one level to one of the other things which I wanted to talk about, which is, um, in a sense, the illusion of stability in social space, if there is one, if you're able to maintain the illusion of stability in social space. It's because uh, the, the exciting thing that's going on is invisible. And what it is, is it's the growth of the net. It's the rise of the web, 
which hour by hour, day by day, is reaching around the planet deeper and deeper and deeper. The number of people getting email has doubled every six months for the last five years. It's doubled every six months. How, if this goes on at the current rate, every man, woman, and child on the planet will have email before the year 2000. And of course, there's nothing to see, there's nothing to touch. I mean, there's some appliances involved, but they're quiet and in the background. And yet, what it is, is that the human uh, neural net, the unconscious of the species, is actually being hardwired as an artifact. We're pouring glass and gold and silicon down the microtubules of the racial imagination and, as it were, making a kind of casting of the state of the human imagination at the close of the millennium. And uh, to what degree this imaging of ourselves in silicon will will ever reach a limit is hard to tell. I mean, we've begun with the past. You know, we're archiving it, we're virtualizing it, we're creating databases that allow us to stroll around in it. But more and more time will be consumed and eventually the only choice will be to allow it to flow over into the presence. And, you know, prosthesis is already practically a way of life. But, uh, what's coming is, uh, is very hard to imagine. And... Prigozhin, to loop one of these concerns back to another, Prigozhin got his start studying traffic theory uh, on freeways. Well, it's now thought by the complexity people that when you when you get somewhere above six to the ninth entities operating in an environment of connectivity that you get, and now we switch philosophers and vocabularies, what David Bohm called emergent properties, and what you and I would call anybody's guess. <laughs> I mean, that's what an emergent property is. It, it means something utterly unexpected, something completely unexpected. For example, I mean, he used very simple examples. For example, if you have five gold atoms you don't have the color yellow. You don't get that until you have hundreds of gold atoms. That color is an emergent property. It requires a large number of gold atoms for the fact that gold is yellow to begin to be part of the picture. Similarly, wetness. If you have a water molecule, it is not wet in any sense that you can relate to. Wetness is a property of thousands of water molecules. It's an emergent property. And so there's obviously nothing magical about this unless you happen to be conscious at one of these phase transitions and you actually see an emergent property come out of a species. And clearly what we are trying to do is overcome our differences Our thing is a curious dichotomy between our individuality and our drive toward community. And technology is facilitating the drive toward community at this incredibly accelerated rate. 
Um, traffic, traffic is accelerating. Traffic is accelerating. And, you know, my enthusiasm for, for psychedelic states of mind, I see simply as um, a kind of aboriginal uh, precognitive anticipation of this state of electronic data fusion and uh, and uh, information transparency that is being put in place. Essentially what we're doing is we're realizing our cultural ideals, whether we're conscious of them or not. And one of our cultural ideals is trans uh, is agape, Christian love, or transparent, telepathic sharing. And so our technology becomes this, you know. I mean, that's why we invented printing presses and clear windows and lingerie and the computer and all of these things facilitate. Do you think that, I mean, everybody reading the Celestine prophecy, what do you think about that? Well, you know, O. Henry said, never read a book till it's five years old. <laughs> and uh, I don't always follow his advice, but in the case of the Celestine prophecy, I have... I'm kind of weird. I was very embarrassed a week ago or ten days ago. I was in New York City, and I was with some friends of mine who were in a rock and roll band and they were on the Letterman show. So I went with them to the Letterman show for the taping of the show. It was the Spin Doctors. And uh, I had never seen the Letterman show. (laughs) So I kept saying to people, is that Letterman? You know, the janitor would go by and then, because we were there an hour ahead of time. So I'm not very al courant with these cultural icons. I wish the author of the Celestine Prophecy, he, she, them, or it, whoever it may be, good luck, a he. Uh, but I do, if, if what I've been able to glean from the ether about the Celestine Prophecy is that it is a, a species of of um, anticipatory uh, visionary breakthrough, right? Saying that the world is going to change beyond our possibility of recognizing it. I I think this is absolutely true. The details are, are where it gets tricky. Part of my notion of how we should all behave as we as we move toward this attractor or this transcendental object that is the telos of the historical process is to just try and spread uh, calm and good vibes so that people, you know, it's like a roller coaster, the sign which says, do not stand up. You know, people should not just keep your mouth shut, keep your hands on the handlebars, and, you know, you can yell your head off if you want, but do not stand up, please. Um, my, just a word about this, I mean, to the immense boredom of half the people in the room who've heard me say this before, but this question about anticipations of the millennium, the way I think of it is that huge events have a kind of um, backwash into the past. They are not cleanly divided from the time which precedes them so that before they happen 
you can almost feel the certitude of their arrival. Uh, and, and so this thing that lies ahead of us now, not very far in the historical continuum, is the grandmother of all of this kind of thing. And social theories, philosophers, psychedelic trips, visions had in the desert, all of these things will just organize themselves like iron filings around the presence of this object ahead of us in time. And so, in a sense, all of history is an anticipation of the end of history. And the closer you get to the end of history, the clearer the anticipations become. So, you know, when you're 2,000 years from it, it's something about how God and man will be fused in one body and a messiah will take a chosen people into a land of milk and honey and that's the best anybody could do that's the clearest image anybody could get of what the deal was so then circa 1948 you're up to you know, the Rigelians will come with enormous ships and advanced medical techniques and teach us how to clean up our earth and love one another and grow food from the sea and so forth and so on. Turns out, no, that isn't it either. And, uh, but, uh, and as we get closer, the amount of prophetistic um, speculation is just going to grow exponentially because all the old systems of thought are failing mm-hmm. and all the old systems of thought are capable of doing is denying the obvious, which is that the earth is on the brink of the greatest change since the end of the Mesozoic, you know? And But people don't like to think about that because all they can think about is, you know, the possibility of personal extinction, technology, Uh, religion, psychedelic drugs, archaeology that could at any moment spew something out of the ground that would completely scramble everybody's notion of what really did go on or something. And I'm not a face-on-Mars guy or some malarkey like that, let me make that clear. But still, you have to be open to the fact that something might come along. Well, what else do we want to say about that? Let me see if I covered my uh, list. I think we we were talking about the nets and the webs. Um, Yeah, this collectivity that is coming into being is is coming into existence more rapidly than anyone can chart or clock or understand. Uh, You know, I have a protocol that goes on in the middle of the night and searches databases all over the world for key words of interest to me. And when I get up in the morning, these files are just stacked on the screen, ready to be gone through. And, you know, it can be trivial, but it could be, you know, a heresy, a Greek Orthodox heresy of interest to fully a dozen people on the planet. And, you know, if the information is out there, the computer will eventually winnow and winnow and winnow because it is so tireless and so and so deeply dedicated to my wishes. 
I mean, what else does it have to do? It doesn't know. Well, uh, the word I was thinking of is Mandayan, which is a religious cult that I'm interested in that's existed continuously for about 2,800 years. Mandayan. And they now are down to a few hundred people in the swamps of Iran and Iraq. And... Uh, I wonder about the state of their community. I wonder how they came through the Gulf War. I wonder if they were able to preserve their very strict kosher laws and a bunch of other things. I mean, you may wonder, why do I care about this? I have a lot on my menu. You know? just, uh... Did you say kosher? Well, they had, by kosher, I mean, they had rules as a religious community that would be almost impossible to follow in the 20th century. For instance, one of their rules was that if your eye fell on a non-believer, if you were a Mandayan and your eye fell on a non-believer, then you had to have six days of purification. Well, since there are only a few hundred Mandayans on this planet, it was tough to not occasionally encounter a non-believer, you can imagine. So then huge amounts of community time and energy were being taken up in these ritual abusions and cleansings to try and make it okay. And, uh, and I wonder how they fare under Saddam Hussein. Well, so then you go on to the net and program this word and you discover that in Pennsylvania there's a committee of people who are concerned about the Mandayan community and then in Germany there are some people who are preserving Mandayan liturgy and at the University of Heidelberg there's a guy who can read the books. And, and it's just... You know, Tim Leary said a wonderful thing years and years ago. He said, find the others. Find the others. And the computer is the tool for finding the others. And it was never intended for folks like you and me. It's one of these things that fell off the military vehicle as it rumbled by. And, you know, we peasants pulled it out of the bushes and discovered what you could <laughs> do with this thing. But you can find the others. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of conferences going on on Usenet. And uh, it's, if it's a work of literature, if it's a sexual preference, if it's a complex programming problem, if it's uh, an issue of uh, historical research or diet or anything else, there are 50 or 60 people just waiting to talk to you about this. So, uh, you know, I, I sort of believe that the, the psychedelic uh, revolution is beginning to bear fruit and that we shouldn't have thought of it as the 60s revolution. We should have thought of it as the 30 years war. And, uh, you know, victory is now within sight. No one can run or program these vast networks except guys with ponytails. And uh, the suits who are depending on all of this stuff to hold the world together are entirely beholden and, you know, guys with one earring and ponytails and all that, everything that loathes and revolts them is interposed between them and the technology because print heads can't hack it. Literally, they can't hack it. 
And as Thomas Kuhn said in the structure of scientific revolutions, you know, um, the way you really make revolutions is by waiting for the old guard to die off. And, and they are dying off. And, uh, and then the synergy that comes from all of these fields melting together. I mean, it is like, my intuition was always that the psychedelic experience was a, a fractal anticipation of human history. You know, that it starts out the same way, everything's normal, you're just cooking your food around the fire, and, and then it builds, and then there's structure, and then dissolution of structure, and then technical accretions, and vast downloading of ideas, and so forth and so on. And it's happening. I mean, the unitary mind is being created. It is, in fact, in existence. The autonomic functions of the human superorganism are already in place. And what do I mean by the autonomic functions? I mean uh, the daily pricing of gold, the computer transactions that characterize the banking system. This is all going on all the time. Machines are talking to machines, moving billions of dollars around, setting the values of currency and precious metals and commodity. I mean, most of this is on automatic. Human operators are only called in when unexpected fluctuations are picked up inside the system. And, and yet it, it's not clear, you know, what is being maximized. The topmost level of control is only assumed to exist. This is very exciting. We all assume that if you follow these trees of control up and up, finally at the level of the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the National Security Council, someone is running it. But it's actually not true. It isn't a tree. It doesn't lead to focal nexus of control. It's a net. It's a web. And, you know, when you, you realize this, you realize that a very large amount of power is in your hands. Uh, the people in this room, even if a couple of homeless have crept in here this evening, which is not likely, the people in this room probably represent the upper 5% of the most powerful manipulators on the planet. Because if you just have a telephone credit card, you're in the upper 10% of the powerful manipulators of information on the planet. Yeah, a calling card. And if you own a power book and an email address, you know, you are a member of the 20 million elite that is running the planet through the cybernet. And uh, talking to those people, changing their minds, interacting with them uh, is the way to steer it. And they are not the suits. They are not the guys chewing the black cigars. They're a much more malleable and open crowd. It, it's, it's hard to pass a uh, capitalist dominator through the keyhole of cyberspace. You, you know, you have to be uh, young and lean and mean. <laughs> Tattoos help. That sort of thing. Mm. Uh, would you say something about artists and, say, religious or spiritual sages who would look at the, might look at 
the technology that you've been talking about and the science that you've been talking about and say, well, we've, we've known this all along. This is sort of old hat. Or, um, and, that, and how you integrate that sort of state of consciousness is much different from the scientific uh, way of seeing things. And where, where are these people... Well, you mean like yogins or something like that? See, yeah, uh, people that shamans that have no need for uh, these ideas. Or this well, kind of shamans, I think, are a good case in that apparently they have no need of these ideas. And what I mean by that is their societies are at dynamic equilibrium, left alone, they seem to do fine, so forth and so on. India, I would argue, shows no such ability to deal with its problems. I mean, socio-politically, it's a mess. They should be, and in fact are, very interested in this kind of technology. You see, the difference between Eastern and Western religion, I mean, there are many differences, but an important one for what we're saying here this evening is that Eastern religion is, is basically timeless. When time is invoked, it's either in the Hindu system where it's kiliochasms of eternity, and they're just cycles upon cycles. Or it's the time of Taoism, which is the time of a moment and an insight. The weird thing about Western religion, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and all the cults that they have spawned, is the insistence that God will enter history which is a crazy idea that God will enter history. At a given moment, it will be redeemed and the hell of toiling for our daily bread and the whole thing will somehow be made right by God's direct manifestation at a certain point. And th this idea finds just no support in the East. So then when you ask about how these religious teachers relate to this technical thing, to me the more interesting um, re relational approach to it is through somebody like Teilhard de Chardin, who I take as my direct inspiration. I never read de Chardin that carefully when he was hot, but since I've come out where I am about all this, I've looked back at it, and he and I are basically in 100% agreement, except I go further. I say the date, and he is crafty enough in his Jesuitical way to stay away from anything so likely to expose you to scorn and ridicule. Uh, but what he's saying in the phenomenon of man... Uh, is that we are now generating what he calls the noosphere. And the noosphere is the, the atmosphere of technical accretions and electronic information transfer and uh, electromagnetic fields, VHF, UHF, uh, so forth and so on. And that this is part of evolution. His great insight was to see geology, biology, and sociology as a continuous spectrum. And, uh, and you know, the, well, McLuhan talked a lot about Teilhard de Chardin. With McLuhan, you never knew whether he was being entirely serious or just going for the good line. But he maintained, he said that 
the age of the Holy Ghost, which was to occur immediately before the end of the world, that the age of the Holy Ghost, we had Edison to thank for it and that the spread of electricity around the world was the direct descent of the Holy Ghost, and that as cities turned to oceans of electric light, he saw it as an epiphany of the third person of the Trinity. This is an argument for keeping Catholics far from the machinery of power. They're clearly screwballs of some sort. Uh, But it seems to me that if consciousness if you make a religion out of consciousness, which, un- which unconsciously I think we in California have done, or that this is what the New Age is about, we worship mind, we worship mind, well, if you make consciousness your religion, then clearly the, the, well, the body of consciousness is the technical accretion. The, the superhighways, the computers, the color, the fiber optic networks, all that is how consciousness manifests itself. Consciousness wants, it's as though we're still involved in the alchemical uh, concerns of the 16th century, that consciousness achieves its fullest perfection through the fusion with matter. You know, that, that the union of spirit and matter which in materialist scientific terms is m- m- crazy talk, doesn't happen. But in, in the terms of the magical pre-Cartesian attitudes toward matter, this is what they were going for. And in a sense, you know, Mersiliad said this. He said, it's ironic that the 20th century, with its scorn for the magical notions of the 16th century, has achieved the full program that those notions set forth. In other words, changing of lead to gold, we do this. It costs a lot of money, but we can do it in our uh, in our uh, reactors, our cyclotrons, we change lead to gold. Uh, we sequence the genome. The secrets of life and longevity are unfolded uh, before us. And... Uh, and then this final thing in the computer. I mean, the computer is the union of spirit and matter. And, uh, you know, five or six years ago, you used to hear a lot of talk about how computers could never do all kinds of things, and they were simply adding machines and this and that. Well, that's a kind of computer. But those voices have grown strangely muted as massive parallel processing and neural nets and stuff like this. Uh, So I I don't know where all this rests. You know, James Joyce said, man will be dirigible, which is like the flying saucer faith. Uh, I would like to think that the philosopher's stone is a suitable goal for human evolution, that we are actually downloading ourselves into uh, a solid state realm where all that all that moves is ideas in the kind of electronic collectivity of mind and then the earth is left to itself but how this is to be accomplished i'm not sure but on the other hand it's not up to me i mean if you read people like hans moravik his book What's it called? Mind children, the future of machine and human intelligence. 
mean, there are ideas in there so bizarre and far out, and yet, you know, being discussed by someone with a tenured position at Carnegie Mellon University, that uh, all that really holds us back as these boundaries dissolve is our imagination. The difference between the psychedelic experience and history is that history is real. And at the end of it, you're going to be able to stay there, wherever there is, if you want, and do those things. And I think it's coming very, very quickly. Even the wildest things that we've talked about here to save certain theoretical constructs, such as time machines, are now being talked about in the popular scientific press. There was an article about time travel three issues ago in Scientific American. So does anybody want to say anything? Yeah. Do you see a distinction between understanding slash knowledge and consciousness? Or do you see those as one and the same thing? Well, this is a hot and complex thing that's being debated right now. The materialists who hold the high ground in neuromolecular physiology, what they like to say, they're very happy with this formulation, they like to say that consciousness is short-term memory plus attention. This is the, this is the new buzzword. Short-term memory plus attention. Actually, Henry James, or William James, said this first, but it's just been brought forward. And if you think about it, that's a pretty good uh, working model. If you say that consciousness is short-term memory plus attention, then it's probably a characteristic of most animals. Uh, and so you then you get a seamless web. Um, where it gets complicated is that what we seem to be able to do is build very, very flexible models of future courses of action. And this may be a relationship to long-term memory. The relationship of higher animals to long-term memory is not clear. In other words, a mountain lion hunting, does she retain uh, a memory of an incident with a important learning embedded in it months and months after it occurs? And in what way does she retain it? Does she retain it as a reflex? Or does she actually, as we do, recall? And when we say recall, we mean picture a scene in our minds from the past and run it forward. How, again, well, this leads to something that I wanted to say. that memory, if you wanted to point to an incredible and significant failure, I've been talking about all these far-out things that have been going on, the, 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 the greatest disappointment in science, I would say, in the last 35 years is the utter failure of science to make any progress on the question of memory. I mean, I've been following it for almost, well, not 35 years, but 30 years, and they're nowhere. They have not gotten beyond the kind of stuff that um, Carl Prebrahm was talking about in Languages of the Brain, which was published in 1973, for crying out loud. Uh, Walter Freeman's work, creative, brilliant work, 
no conclusion. The hardcore materialists have gotten nowhere. And this is a central thing for understanding consciousness. Because where are the memories? You know, Carl Lashley was the first person to ask this question, and it's never been satisfactorily answered. And, you know, now there are new theories about uh, interference patterns in the brain and this sort of thing. But, you know, when the telephone was new, neurophysiologists like Ramon de Cajal said the brain was like an, an international telephone network. Now suddenly we have a hot new metaphor and we apply it to the darkest area of our ignorance, which is the brain. But... Uh, and then, you know, you have the hardcore mystics who say the effort to understand consciousness is intrinsically doomed to failure, that brain cannot elucidate brain. And there's something to be said for that, you know, Gödel's incommensurability theorem and that whole thing. I don't exactly understand what it means to say, explain consciousness understand it i mean what would that mean does that mean we would start with a with a synaptic event and end with an experience and be able to trace the transition from synaptic event to experience all the way through i like and you know it's a free enough field now you can say anything you want i like the idea that the brain is is a uh, antenna not a storage device and that seeking memory in the brain is like tearing transistor radios apart looking for little men. You know, there aren't little men in there. And, you're, and, and so what you have instead is a quantum mechanical antenna. That would make sense because I really believe nature is a kind of seamless, self-regulating oscillator of some sort. And so it's much more important to be in tune with the larger s sets of what's going on than to be isolated from that and somehow inwardly cognizant of, an, of what philosophers call an interior dimension of transcendence. I don't believe that. I think uh, you know, that we are the most existentially isolated of all animal species as a consequence of language and that part of our difficulty in... Uh, in correctly picturing the mind and its place in nature is the fact that we we assume our uniqueness and our isolation and the strength of the ego boundary but but if you saw the brain that's why you know my idea of the culture the regulation of culture through the psychedelic experience is not that there is something magical about the psychedelic experience in and of itself, but that what it is, is an attunement to natural harmonics on many levels that we could call, I do call it, the Gaian mind. It's a higher intentionality, but it's not mystical mumbo-jumbo, it's biology, that there's level upon level of pheromones, uh, oscillations, chemical oscillators, all kinds of things that regulate biology besides the, the gross activation of enzyme systems inside uh, the wetware of an organism. That when you're in the na uh, jungle like the Amazon, you see 
that you know this is seamless this is one thing it's only my my style of knowing that tells me this is a palm tree this is a crocodile this is a butterfly but the way it's all working is it's just genes and gene exchange and uh, life and death and procreation and symbiosis and uh, so forth and so on. It ties in with Rupert Sheldrake stuff too. And, and, uh, I was thinking of idiot savants too, how they, with their minds and their antenna, tapping into this incredible knowledge that there's no way they could have ever learned. Yes, well, I count myself among their number. <laughs> Without doubt. No, that's the only way, I, I mean, that is how I explain my my career, because it, it has, you know, fundamentally a mathematical basis that's very solid and beyond reproach by all but the most stalwart, and yet, clearly, I'm some kind of cannabis-smoking lunatic. So how did that happen? Well, it's just the principle of the idiot savant, I think. And that nature is knowable, you know. If you're God's fool, the secret will be given over to you. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in every drop of water. Every everything has it in it. That was that's that was the alchemical faith, and it's the fractal faith that we, as well. I have a question about the the. The antenna thing, because I understand it in terms of, you know, under, picking up certain ideas or whatever, but when you talk about receiving specific memories that you, as a single entity, have experienced, so is, is you, you as an entity have experienced this thing and now it's just floating out there in whatever. You mean, does it actually call you up and say, hey, you, is it like that? How is it, what, what is it that produces that one, I mean... I, you know, I can imagine re, uh, re, receiving certain things that are cultural, or, you know, Gaia and whatever. But th- when you receive, you're, you're talking about your own personal memory of, you know, stubbing your toe eight years ago. You know, why is that floating around? Oh, I see what mind? you're saying. Well, this is the great problem for all theories of memory. We know that in if you live to be 70 years old, that every molecule in your body will be exchanged approximately ten times. Well, then how is it that a 70-year-old woman can remember what it was like to be taken in the arms of her grandmother and the smell of the perfume that the old lady wore? I mean, that is just an absolute mystery. And the hardcore, if you're a hardcore materialist, and God knows they're around somewhere, probably not here, but if you're a hardcore materialist, then you say, well, something must persist. And if we could figure out the one thing that persists, then we'd have it nailed. Well, it turns out there is something which persists. It, the, the, the neurons do not cycle over. You are born with a certain number of neurons and you die with a few less, depending on your drug-taking history, and they are never replaced and they are never cycled out. Well, we... But then the materialists break down because this magical substance, which you would think would help them solve their memory problems the theories necessary to turn it into the storage side of memory are too fantastic for them to swallow. 
you would have to go to something like the invisible landscape, plug, plug, to find a theory radical enough to account for that because you would have to hypothesize molecular storage almost at the speed of a tape recorder of theoretically an entire lifetime. So 70, let's make it 35 years, because presumably you don't retain your dreams very useful. So let's say 30 years of continuous tape recording being downloaded into something under eight angstroms in diameter with no degradation of, of the data stream and so forth and so on. I mean, it becomes insupportable and fantastic in their minds but perhaps not. I mean, why is... I mean, nature has a peculiar way of, um, of using redundancy. Like, once nature finds a way to do something, she will tend to use that technique over and over again in different applications. We see that the problem of storage of information and retrieval of information and non-degradation of that information has all been solved in the functioning of DNA. Uh, but the information that is stored in DNA, if you talk to an information theorist, they will say, well, it's not like memory, it's not like people's faces or their addresses and telephone numbers, it's just protein synthesis. It's structures for protein synthesis, and you mustn't be so naive as to confuse this with real information and pat on the head, so forth and so on. But here we have the DNA, the central molecular machinery of life, and for reasons known to nobody, vast sections of it are what are called silent DNA. What does that mean? It means those parts of the DNA don't code for proteins. Well, but maybe they code for something else. Maybe they code for memory. And maybe the so-called random or trash arrangement of nucleotides in those sections of the DNA are, in fact, our memory. I mean, memory is very mysterious, and the mechanism which explains it may involve principles at the edge of or beyond the grasp of current science. I mean, think of it. You know, I, I have memories going back to eight months, and many people report memories under three years, and often these are in are movies, you know? The most highly degradable and data-dense form of image storage there is. I mean, that's why it's so maddening to store images you know, videotape on computers today because it's so uh, memory-intensive, as they say in the biz. And yet this seems to be how we store our, our memories. Oh, uh, let's see, what else needs to be said? Well, again, this is simply a laundry list of, of things, uh, cutting-edge concerns and ideas in the realm of what I've left out, and I'll mention it, and then maybe we can knock off, are pop political ideas. Uh, I've talked to you guys before about the idea of one woman, one child. I've slightly modified it recently. 
or made an addendum to it, which is, uh, I think it would be very interesting if 75, if every woman had one child, we've talked about that and the social consequences of that, but how interesting it would be then if 75% of those children were female and that the feminization of society, I think, should not proceed through the feminization of man. It should proceed by dialing down the overall number of men in the society. And uh, I think probably the 50-50 sexual ratio that is actually an artificial ratio maintained by crazed monogamites and their dominator stooges not to judge it of course but uh, and and that uh, in usually in large uh, mammalian social animal groups males are more at a premium and uh, so that's something I've been following and talking to people and then lastly and in a somewhat lighter vein uh, uh, I want to urge you all to consider the Zippies and their crusade to save the soul of America, which you may not have heard of. <laughs> well, that's how it is with crusades. <laughs> the Zippies are a bunch of English bohemians who are trying to launch a third British cultural wave following in the model of the Beatles first and Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols second and now come the Zippies and they exemplify a certain kind of syncopated house trance, dance, techno music and um, what I like about them is that they operate under the banner of what they call pronoia and pronoia is the creeping idea that people are plotting behind your back to help you. <laughs> and I, I see pronoia as part of the phenomenon of boundary dissolution. You know, things are going to get better and better because everyone... And, and what a zippy is, is basically a, a freak who has their shit together. You know... Zippies are freaks, but they don't have large amounts of garbage in their apartments. <laughs> freaks who recycle, that's, a, that's your typical zippy. And so they'll be making their way across country, and if you get a chance to attend any of their raves, um, you should do it. Raves are very good for the soul. And, and there's a lot of youth bashing going on in this country. And it's very weird and directed from large glass and aluminum boxes along Madison Avenue in Manhattan. There is, you do not, you know, there's nothing wrong with people under 25. Uh, they're fine, thank you. It's the culture that they're inheriting that is so toxic and weird that they don't know what to do with it. And somehow the response of that culture is to stigmatize them and lay down all kinds of horseshit trips about Generation X and this and that and the other thing. The, I really think the Zippies are the real um, youth culture. And it's psychedelic and it's experience-based. 
that's the other thing, something we've preached here over and over again, that the primacy of direct experience is what life is about. Not what Time Magazine is telling you, but, you know, how you feel in your body right here, right now. And, you know, the drugs you take and the sexual acts you participate in and the things you do with your mind and body in real time and everything else is highly abstract and not to be trusted, I think. In New York, I, I gave a talk for the Zippies trying to formulate what it is, and it's mostly what it isn't. You know, It's about not believing, not consuming, not following, uh, it's about taking taking back direct experience. If we could feel our circumstance, if we could feel what we're doing to the earth and each other, we wouldn't do it. It's that simple because it's too horrible. But, you know, you can anesthetize yourself with ideology, with wealth, with distance, uh, uh, with religious obsession, uh, so forth and so on. And then, you know, you can't tell shit from Shinola. But pain is pain, agony is agony. There's uh, plenty of it out there. So I think the precondition for any kind of response to that, uh, any kind of like political or re reforming response to it, is to feel. And that means taking back your own social space from the the machinery of media and domination and value manipulation and so forth and so on. So I, I live life with an immense sense of intellectual excitement and hope. That's the thing. I think there are a whole bunch of uh, cards on the table that permit intelligent people to hope. Intelligence and cynicism which have gone hand in hand throughout the 20th century, are no longer good company with each other. It's inappropriate. Cynicism is now inappropriate. It's déclassé. It's not chic, my dears. Something else is on the horizon. And uh, so permitting smart people to hope, that is uh, the goal. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And what a wonderful goal that is, permitting smart people to hope. I've got a dozen ideas about how to expand on that phrase, but for now I'm going to let you ruminate about that on your own. Permitting smart people to hope. Not a bad goal, do you think? Actually, I wish I'd come across this talk several years ago while Fraser Clark was still alive. He would have been thrilled to hear what Terence had to say about the Zippies just now. Fraser was a friend of mine and has appeared here in the salon on several occasions. If you go to our program notes blog, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, you'll see that under the category sidebar there are several podcasts featuring Fraser. And podcast number 45, which is titled Rave Culture and the End of the World as We Know It, is the talk that Fraser gave at Stanford University during this uh, zippy pronoia tour that Terence was talking about. It's an interesting talk, and if you haven't listened to it yet, you may want to check it out. I hope that you uh, also noticed that about uh, 50 minutes into this talk, 
Terrence said that if those assembled had an email account and a laptop, they were then a member of the 20 million elite that is running the planet through the cybernet. (laughs) I wonder how he'd feel today, knowing that the number of us humans who are now interconnected through the Internet, in one way or another, has already reached almost 3 billion. That's right, almost one half of all humans alive today have access to the net. And this is something completely new in human history, uh, completely unprecedented. It's, it's just something not to be taken lightly. An entirely new human experience has begun to evolve on the surface of this planet. And like it or not, we are here at its beginning. It's not for nothing that the title of my novel is The Genesis Generation. And while the talk we just listened to was given in June of 1994, some 20 years before the events in Ferguson, Missouri, even back then, Terence was speaking about the illusion of stability in social space. Another little fascinating tidbit that Terence brought out was that overnight his computer would search the net for things that might interest him. And in case you're wondering, this talk was given four years before Google came along and Yahoo hadn't even yet become a corporation. So what was he using to gather up all of this information while he slept, you ask? Well, my guess is that he was probably using my old friend, the Gopher Protocol, that wonderful software from the University of Minnesota. And I'll bet that I'm not the only person in the salon right now who remembers Gopher with great fondness. At the time, it seemed truly miraculous. Now, one other thing that I feel obliged to comment on for uh, any newcomers to the salon is where Terrence gave credit to Timothy Leary for the phrase, Find the Others. If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you know that at a later date when the two of them met, the good Dr. Leary denied ever having said that. However, he did allow that he thought it a good phrase, so uh, I guess we have to credit Anonymous for that one. And uh, since in my older age, note that I acknowledge getting older, but I didn't say my old age, anyway, uh, I find that lately I have no trouble in telling embarrassing stories about myself. What I'm thinking about is uh, Terence's rhapsodizing about Teilhard de Chardin. You see, the last time that I had a conversation with Terence is when I was working on the final draft of The Spirit of the Internet, which uh, rests on three pillars. The Internet, Psychedelics, and Teilhard's writings. So here's the embarrassing part. At the time, I asked Terence if he was familiar with Teilhard, and his reply was, Yeah, I've heard of him. Well, and uh, here's the embarrassing part. I took that to mean that he didn't know much at all about him, so I proceeded to uh, lecture him about how Teilhard had prophesied the Internet. And Terrence never let on that he'd already long ago come to the same conclusion, which I later realized that uh, he surely had. But at the time, he let me believe that I'd come up with a great idea on my own, and he encouraged me to push along and finish that book. Now, the reason that I tell this story is that It's often the case at a conference when a young student rushes up to a speaker, gushes something in an attempt to make an impression, and then later on realizes that uh, he or she has probably looked a little foolish. Well, that's exactly how I felt months later when I learned how much Terrence actually knew about Teilhard. But here's the whole point. Should you ever find yourself in a situation like that, and then keep yourself awake at night thinking poorly of yourself, like that great Saturday Night Live comedian Chris Farley would do in his routine of, Why did I say that? Well, just remember that it happens to all of us, both young and old, for, you see, at the time I made that faux pas, I was already over 50 years old. And what's more, 
Terrence was the young guy in that exchange. The moral of the story is to always trust yourself. You'll make some mistakes along the way. We all do. But just because you may be young, and even though you don't have a great deal of life experience, there's something deep inside all of us that we always know what to do. Call it your instinct, or your gut feelings, or whatever you want. But trust it. Trust yourself, no matter how old you are. And in case you're wondering, the previous message is actually a reminder to myself, (laughs) because it's so easy to forget sometimes. But that doesn't mean that I still don't want to get in the last word. (laughs) I think that you'll discover, uh, if you read The Phenomena of Man by Teilhard, you'll discover that Terence was actually wrong in the way that he described the newosphere in this talk. But I'll leave that up to you to discover for yourself. Finally, uh, just now we heard Terence, once again, lament the fact that men's voices continue to overpower those of women. And he again spoke about his theory about what he called dialing down the number of men. Well, I think that he has a point. And in fact, uh, over a hundred podcasts ago, we heard the first rumblings about the fact that uh, even here in the psychedelic community, there are far more men's voices being heard than there are those of women. And here in the salon, there have also been several discussions about why that is. But it seems to me that the times they are changing. With the uh, ongoing success of the Women's Visionary Congress and other forums that are working to include more women speakers, I've been noticing uh, ever more women stepping up onto the stage. And I like this trend, and I want to do what I can to help it along. So, for one thing, I've taken my name off any lists of potential speakers at uh, the various conferences that invite me from time to time. My plan is that this old white man won't be up on any stage again. But I'm only one old white man, and I don't feel that it's my place to convince any of my peers to do the same thing. That decision should be theirs alone. However, there is one other thing that I can do, and actually I've already done it. Beginning with my next podcast, we will be featuring women speakers in every other program. I've wanted to do this for some time now, but it's been difficult to obtain enough audio material from women speakers. However, after listening with you to Shona, Nessa, and Lily in Podcast 410, where they were speaking about this very issue, I got in touch with them, and uh, to make a long story short, they have agreed to not only continue with their ongoing conversations, but they have also stepped up to the plate and taken on the responsibility of obtaining the audio material that will enable the salon to become significantly more gender-balanced than it has been in the past. While I'll still be doing the introduction and concluding remarks, just as I have for over nine years now, the selection of material and speakers for every other podcast will be entirely up to them, and whomever they recruit to help them, I should add. I've promised not to censor them in any way, and uh, even when they may say something that may bruise my male ego. Of course, uh, at this stage of the game, that's not very easy to do. (laughs) And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends, and have a good burn tonight.